Hello, and welcome to Hope Church. We're a local church with chill style, real faith, and no perfect people allowed. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This is a message from our SoCal location in the Santa Cruz, California area. We hope this message is encouraging. If you live near either of our locations, we'd love to have you join us for one of our many Sunday services. Hey, good morning, you guys. Welcome to Hope Church. Um, we're actually going to, um, we normally have just kids stuff in our second service, but this morning um, we have a lot of kids, and so um, we're offering a kids class this morning. So if anybody wants to release their kids to class, they're welcome to. And if you do, you're going to follow Miss Megan. She's waving her hand in the back right there. You can follow her up to class. You're more than welcome to do that or stay, either one. Um, we love having you guys either way. So have a great time. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Um, so, hey, good morning, guys. If you're joining us here or online or out on the patio, welcome to Hope Church. Really glad that you're uh, joining us for, uh, we're in a series called Second Chances, or continuing that series today. Um, we're talking about um, second chances. You know, when I was a kid, my, my older sister received from my parents a uh, disposable camera. Does anyone remember disposable cameras, right? Disposable camera. So as, uh, for those of you that are looking at me blankly, it's a, it was a box. It looked roughly like a camera. It had a little lens on it, but it was basically, it had one roll of film in it. You took the film, and then when it was done, you had the film processed and you threw it away. It's disposable. Disposable camera, right? And my parents gave my sister one because she was going to summer camp. And she went to summer camp, and for some reason, she decided to only take like a handful of pictures, maybe a half dozen pictures. And, and these disposable cameras, this particular one had 22 shots. I think she took maybe six, and she came home thinking, I'll take some shots over the rest of the summer with my friends, and she left it on her desk, which was a mistake because I found it. Um, I think I was eight or nine, and uh, so I was bringing my you know, eight or nine-year-old A-game to this, this moment. I walked in, I saw her, her camera on the desk, and I thought, this will be fun. I'll take a couple shots. As it turned out, I took them all. And, um, you know, I, I mean, my composition was pretty good. There was a lot of shots of, like, my feet, but blurry, like in action poses, you know. I took a shot of her pencil on her desk. I found a dead fly on the windowsill. Took a shot of that. It was pretty cool. So what happened is when my mom took the camera and got, had it developed at the store and got the pictures back, of course, you know, hilarity ensued, right? I mean, not really. My sister was pretty upset because she saw all these pictures and she knew right away who took them. But there's no do-over on that, right? There's no... There's no second chance. I mean, once the film's done, it's done. Not like a digital camera um, where, you know, a digital camera, if your kid gets your, a hold of your, your, um, your phone and starts taking pictures, in fact, I think I have some special shots to uh, show you that my son Ben took. Um, if, uh, if your child now gets a hold of your camera and starts taking pictures, you can just delete them, right? I mean, you should, yeah. Yeah, this he found it one day, and I came back, and I was like, man, there's a lot of pictures on here. What's, what's on there? And it was all of these. Yeah, there's a whole bunch. And so if I like, I can just delete them, and they cost nothing, right? It costs nothing. Um, and I don't want to give the impression, as we're talking about this second chances series, I don't want to give the impression that we think that there's do-overs mostly in life, because mostly there's not. It's, life is really actually more like the disposable camera than the digital thing. It's you know, um, once a moment has passed, it, it doesn't return again. Um, so when we say second chances, we're talking about, we are, we are serving a God of second chances, but we're, we're talking about a God who is an author of redemptive stories. That's what we mean by second chances. And so 
Um, the story today that we're going to be looking at in the scriptures comes out of the book of Genesis. It's a very old literary book that, that begins the library of books we call the Bible. And because we live in a modern age and uh, we live in a day where a book like Genesis actually is fairly controversial, I thought I would just, before I tell the story that I'm going to tell you, I thought I would just um, explain this complex literary work in 60 seconds. Can I do that? Just tell you about, tell you about how important and uh, beneficial and meaningful the literary work of Genesis is in 60 seconds. You ready? All right, here you go. Okay, so Genesis does not answer the questions you probably have heard that it answers. Genesis does not seek to answer questions like, did people and dinosaurs live at the same time? Or how old is the earth? Or how is there such complex life on the earth? It does not seek to answer those questions. It answers deep philosophical questions. It answers four by my estimation. And the first question that it answers is this, why is there something rather than nothing? And this is answered in the first three chapters of Genesis. Why is there something rather than nothing? Think about that. It would be a lot easier if there was just nothing, and yet there's something. Why is that? And the answer that comes back from the biblical author of Genesis is Yahweh. Yahweh, this enormously powerful creator God, spoke into being all that there is. Why is there something rather than nothing? Yahweh. And the second question that then arises from this contemplation is, why does this seem to be, then, a less than ideal world? Have you ever thought about this? This world is not as ideal as it could be. We can all think of a better version of this world, I'm sure, if we thought about it. And yet, here we are in this one. Why is that? Well, the chapters 4 through 11, the stories of Adam through Noah and the Tower of Babel, answers this question. And the answer is us. It's us. We're the reason why this world is not as ideal as it could be. Well, another question arises. If, if, if this world is not as ideal as it could be, then is there anything that can be done about that? Well, Genesis answers that question as well. Chapters 12 through 36 covers the lifespan of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it talks about this family in which God makes a promise, and he tells them there's a plan. So is there anything that can be done about that? The question is, there's a plan. There's a plan. There's a plan. And then the last, the fourth part of Genesis, 37 through 50, narrows the focus and, and covers the life of just one individual, a man named Joseph. So if the question is, is there a plan, and, and there is, then what's the plan, right? What's the plan? And the life of Joseph answers this in, in echoes and shadows and types um, as he reflects the life of someone that would come after him through his lineage 1,500 years ago, or 1,500 years later, a man named Jesus, who was born to a, a mom named Mary and raised by a stepdad, coincidentally, also named Joseph, right? So we want to focus today, though, on the life of a man named Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, this is Joseph's dad, Jacob, we're going to focus on his life, and we're going to we look at some of the second chances that he was given. I think a lot of times, this is very uh, common, people think both inside and outside of the church that the Bible, the, the, the biblical narrative, is full of stories of people that we can look at um, that lived perfect lives that we can, and we can model our lives after their good choices. 
This is not actually what you find when you read the scriptural account. These people, it's amazing to me, in fact, that some of these people allowed their stories to be written down because they're so embarrassing, right? In fact, this family line that occupies this section of Genesis that we're looking at is really messed up. If you came here today thinking, my family's kind of a mess, you're going to walk out of here feeling a lot better about your situation. I'm just going to tell you. Now, some of their failings are very relatable. We're going to look at their, their, some of the failures today in this family line, and they're going to be relatable to us because we also are human beings, and therefore we also are selfish and self-serving, and we have some of the same failings that they had. But there's some of their failings that are not as relatable, and that is because of the distance of time and culture. So I wanted to just address one of those today because it is going to come up as we're talking about it. And this one particular failure that's going to come up that is not one that's probably relatable to us is something called polygamy, all right? So I just wanted to get this out of the way at the beginning so we didn't have to talk about it later. So polygamy. So just by a show of hands here, who here would say they're against polygamy? Who, who here is against polygamy? See, I was hoping for 100% on that. But that's um, a couple back here that might be, they're on the fence. They're, they could go either way on polygamy. Polygamy, let me explain what polygamy is in case... You don't know. Polygamy is it's, a, it's where a, a man takes more than one woman for their wife, to be his wife. So, so any number over one, basically. It could be two or it could be 200. That's a polygamous relationship. Now, I say man and multiple wives because, I mean, theoretically, it could be a woman with multiple husbands, but that's just never happened in the human race in the whole history because women are much smarter than that. They know that would never work out. They would never do that. Human males are the only creatures that have been dumb enough to try this, and it's failed every time. This is a story of one of those uh, failures. So, but polygamy does something. It accomplishes something negative. It's a, it, think of it as a vehicle that uh, diminishes one of God's values. Did you know God had values, things that he prefers to have happen, things that he cares about? In fact, God designed the universe to conform to his values. He he made a universe, and he shaped it a certain way. Uh, for example, the universe, I don't know if you know this, but the universe is expanding. It's getting bigger. It's not static like people once thought it was, and it's not contracting. It's expanding. He made it that way. He wanted it that way. Uh, water, for example, flows downhill and not up, right? He wanted it that way. He built it that way. And just like he built into his material universe, um, physical values, he built into his universe moral values, into the structure of human community. He designed human community to be a certain way, a way that he wanted it to be, because it was the best way. But then he offered us that model, and we took it, we took the design, and we started to twist it. And we started to make it conform to something else, our selfish design, right? We, we bent it until it pleased us more. We made it a selfish one instead of a selfless one. And what Jesus does is he comes and he interrupts history with his physical incursion into our story. And the first thing he does is he begins to show us how to restore the model. If you look at the things that Jesus talks about, he does this all the time. He tells us how to restore the model that we twisted. In fact, in Matthew 19, Jesus says, uh, some, some religious leaders come to him, and they're asking him about this very thing that we're talking about, uh, the marital relationship, men and women, and how it all works and how messy it is. And, and Jesus replies to them, and he says, Moses allowed for you to have divorce. 
He allowed divorce uh, because your hearts were hard. You broke the model. Here's what he says. He says, but it was not that way from the beginning. In the beginning, there was an intent. There was a model. And Jesus goes about restoring the model. And by doing that, he's saying, he's saying, there's a new family, and you're welcome in this family. But this family has, has values. And now these are your values too, right? Okay, so let's talk about Jacob. Let's, let's talk about, now we've, now we've talked about family and values. Let's talk about Jacob, right? So his, do you know the story of Jacob? Have you, have you heard about this guy? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? So his, his grandfather, Abraham, received a blessing and a promise from God, but he messed it up. He, he lied, he deceived, he didn't trust God. He broke his marriage covenant with his wife, and he tried to force God's hand uh, early. He wasn't patient. These are themes you're going to begin to see throughout this story. This family kind of did this kind of stuff a lot, in fact. Then Abraham has a son, and his son is named Isaac. And, and Isaac paid some of the price for, for Abraham's failures, but he continued the dysfunction. He, he allowed for nepotism and favoritism in his family culture. In fact, it permeated his whole, his whole family. So consequently, when Jacob was grown, he followed these poor examples. I remember uh, when, my, when my wife Amy and I, had, we did marital counseling, and the pastor at the time told us, he said, you'll always find in life that the most natural thing for you to do in any set of circumstance is whatever your parent would have done in that same set of circumstance. And I found that to be true. That's, that's true. For better or for worse, the most natural thing for you to do is whatever your parent would have done. And we kind of have a way of following the model unless we make different decisions, right? So Jacob, when he was grown, he conspires with his mother, Rebekah, and he betrays his brother, Esau. And he takes his blessing. He takes the blessing that was intended for Esau, and he takes it for himself. He, he tricks his blind elderly father, and he betrays his brother. And after trashing these family relationships, he, he runs away. He runs away. He has to start over in a new place because he's destroyed his family relationships. Right? Does this sound familiar to you at all? Does this... Does it sound familiar? This is, this is not just an ancient story. This is our story. This is the story of human beings. So Jacob runs away, and it says that he, uh, he met a woman at a well. It's a good place to meet girls, by the way, at wells um, in, the, in those days. Uh, everybody needs water. So he meets this girl, and he follows her home and finds out that this girl, is at, that Rachel, is the daughter of Laban, who is his mother's brother. So it's his uncle. And he falls in love with Rachel. Now, if you're thinking, wait, hang on a second. Would that be his first cousin that he's falling in love with? Yes, that's right. That's right. Super, super weird um, to us, not to them. There wasn't a lot of people back then, so not a lot of choices. So he follow, falls in love with Rachel, and um, he goes to his uncle, and he tries to get from his uncle what he couldn't get from his father, which was approval. He wants approval. He wants to know, am I... Am I good enough? Am I a man enough? Am I important? Is there a promise for my life? Does this have meaning? Does it have value? So he, he makes this deal with Laban. He says, if you give me your daughter, her hand in marriage, Rachel, I'll work for you for seven years and prove to you what kind of man that I am. And Laban agrees. After seven years goes by, uh, Jacob goes and says, i 
I've worked for you for seven years. It's time. I, I want to marry Rachel now. And so Laban throws a big party. And at this party, there's only men. Men are there. If you read the story, it's just a bunch of dudes. If you ever show up to a wedding and there's no women there, you should stop and go, hmm, what's happening here? Is there something, is there something happening? There's no bride is what's happening. There's no bride. And if you look at the Hebrew word for this word feast, it's mishtah, which literally means drinking party. So everybody's drinking really heavily. And by nightfall, and keep in mind that at night there's no lights, right? There's no electrical lights. You can't see anything. Uh, Laban brings a woman to Jacob, and Jacob uh, uh, sleeps with her that night, and in the morning discovers that it's not Rachel, is, is the short version of the story. Now, you, you might go, well, how, did, how could he? Yeah, let's not worry about it. Let's just, not, let's, just, let's just move on from that. Let's just assume things happened at that uh, mishtah that are better left unspoken. So in the morning, he goes, hey, this isn't what we talked about, and so he makes another deal, another seven years of work. Um, so it's Leah, which is uh, Rachel's older sister, and now Rachel. So he has two wives. That's one too many, if you're keeping track at home. So here's what happens. He marries these two women, and they begin a new, uh, kind of a new set of dysfunctions uh, by competing with one another. Leah and Rachel are competing uh, with one another for Jacob's approval. And um, here's, how, here's how it goes. I'm just going to read you a couple of things that they say. This is in Genesis chapter nine, uh, 29, verse 32. It says, Leah became pregnant, gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. And here's what she says. Listen to how heartbreaking this is. She says, it's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. That's awful. She felt totally unloved in this, in this arrangement. And then she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. And then, and then again, and he says, now at last my husband will become attached to me. Because I, this is really heartbreaking stuff, right? And she has child after child trying to win the approval of her husband. Now over on Rachel's side of the tent, <clears throat> uh, Rachel says, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her, of her sister, and she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Well, that's, that's one way to talk in a marriage, right? Give me something or I'll die. Threats of death, that's a good motivation. Jacob became angry, and he said, what am I, God? I, who's keeping you from having kids, right? So Rachel says, well, here is Bilhah, my servant. Okay, it's going to start getting really weird here, just... All right, I'm just going to prepare you. This, this, I mean, it's been dysfunctional. Now it's going into a deep dive. This is Jerry Springer territory here. She says, here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and I, too, can build a family through her. And Bilhah said, wait, what? I thought I was here to make falafels and sweep the tent. This is a whole other thing. And it continues on like this. Rachel says this, she says, God has vindicated me, he has listened to my plea and given me a son. No, that's not what happened. That's not what happened, Rachel. God, um, she says, uh, so Bilhah has a couple of sons, Dan and another one. She says, I have great I've greatly struggled with my sister and I have won. Nope, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. But you know what, just to summarize this, I, I thought it would be easier. This is getting really confusing, right? There's all these servants and, and, and uh, sons, and so I had Dustin make this flow chart. I call this the flow chart of dysfunction, right? So check this out. This is, uh, this is Jacob, right? And his first wife, Leah, 
Then his next wife, her sister Rachel. There's poor Bilhah over here. This is Zilpha. This is, uh, this is Leah's servant, right? So she gets in on the scene. And look at all the sons that they have. Jacob in the middle. Yeah. Look at that mess. How many, how many sons are up there? Anybody want to count real quick? How many sons are there? Twelve, yeah. Baker's dozen. You know, God has this way of turning messes into miracles, doesn't he? You know, you, know who, you know who this is? This is the 12 tribes of Israel right here, right? God would do great things through this nation, but look how it started. What a mess. What a mess. I'm sure that for some of us, you know, we take stock, we take stock of our own life and we think, what a mess. What a mess I've made. How could God do anything with this mess? He finds a way somehow, doesn't he? Well, through all while this is happening, also, Jacob is doing this whole other thing. I'm not going to read to you about it right now. It's, it's um, several chapters. But he, he builds his, his own personal wealth right under Laban's nose. It's this, you should read it. It's, it involves uh, sheep and goats and this whole thing. It's, it's a really fantastic story. But he builds this uh, kingdom right under Laban's nose, and then it grows a little uncomfortable, so Jacob flees uh, Laban's kingdom. He takes all of these people and all of their servants and all of his his uh, employees and all of his wealth, his flocks of sheep and goats, and he leaves. He runs again. It's kind of his pattern, isn't it? When there's trouble, he runs, right? So now we come to the crux of the story, okay? So Jacob is on the move. He's, he's gone from situation to situation looking for something. He's trying to get what he needs, and he's looking in all the wrong places, right? So Jacob thinks, I'm going to head back to the land of my father, but who's back in the land of his father? Who's there waiting for him? Esau, right? Remember? He pulled one over on Esau, and he hasn't seen him in almost 20 years. So Jacob, we're going to pick up in uh, chapter 32, verse 3. Jacob sends messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he instructs them, this is what you were to say to my lord Esau. Your, your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban. And I have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats and male and female servants. So he's kind of rattling off his, his wealth, all he's accumulated. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I might, listen to this, I might find favor in your eyes. So remember that for later. That's going to become important. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we, check this out. We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you. Oh, that's fantastic. Also, he's bringing 400 men with him. What? Oh, those days, you don't go rolling out strapped with 400 dudes unless you were looking to cause or make trouble, right? In great fear and distress, Jacob goes, oh my gosh. He divides the people, so he gets strategic. He divides his group into two groups, and his thinking is if one gets attacked, the other one can, get, can escape, right? And Jacob stops and he prays. He prays this prayer. Oh, now he prays, right? Now he prays. Oh, God, my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac. Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also make the mothers of their children. Um, but you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make, you your, uh, make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Our prayers get really eloquent when we're in deep trouble. Have you noticed that? 
all of a sudden, oh, God, here's all the things that I promised to stop doing. If only you'll rescue me, right? This is one of those kinds of prayers. It says he spent the night there. Um, he divided his group into two camps. He put them in the care of his servants. And he instructed the one in the lead. He says, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob and they are a gift. So listen to what he's doing. He's sending out a portion of his wealth ahead of him as a bribe to his brother. What a little conniving guy this is, isn't it? He's such a mess. So he sends out this bribe, right? He says, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Uh, later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. That's a solid plan. So down here it says, so Jacob was left alone. So he sends all his family, all his servants, all his wealth across the river, right? He, he makes sure everybody crosses at this little fording place. And in, when the evening comes, he finds himself on the, on the other side of the river by himself. It says, that night Jacob, uh, oh, it says, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. So a, a man comes to him in the night and begins to wrestle with him. And then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. That's why we call these the 12 tribes of Israel, right? He said, you will be called Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and overcome. And Jacob asked the man, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Because he, he knows. He knows already, right? Why, why are you asking? You already know. Then he blessed him there. And Jacob called the, the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. All Jacob wanted was approval. All he wanted was the approval to be, to be told that he's special, that he's important, that there's a plan for him, that it's all not just meaningless. He tried to trick his dad into giving it to him. He tried to trick his uncle Laban into giving it to him. In desperation, he tries to bribe his estranged brother into giving it to him. Hasn't worked out super well. Do you want to hear what happens when, Laban, or when Esau and Jacob come together? Check this out. This is chapter 33, verse, verse 1. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among, the, among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead, and he, check this out, he bows down. He bows down to the ground seven times as he approaches his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob, and he embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him, and they wept. I, I'm a man that has two brothers. I have two younger brothers, and I can tell you there's no embrace like the embrace of a brother that you haven't seen in a long time, especially if there was a moment where you thought you might not see each other again. Then Esau looked up and saw the woman and the children, and he says, who are these with you? He said, look at this. Look at you, Jacob. Look what you've done, you know? And J Jacob answered, they are the children that God has graciously given your servant. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds that I met? So he's going, what's up with, what's up with this? You sent this whole thing ahead? What, what's up with that? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. 
And Esau said, I have already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. This is a beautiful story of redemption. This is not where Jacob thought this was going, right? So I have two observations to make. I don't have a big, long sermon. I just wanted to read you this beautiful story, let it affect us, and then just make two observations, okay? This is how we'll, we'll finish our time together is with these two observations. The first is this. When we seek from people what only God can offer, our life will be defined by disappointment. When we seek from people what only God can offer, our life will be defined by disappointment. That's what Jacob did. That's often what we do, too. We look to people to give us things that only God can give us. And so we're constantly disappointed. You know, when, when, uh, when Esau asks Jacob, well, what's the meaning of this bribe? And, and Jacob answers, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. That Hebrew word, Lord, there. You notice it was capitalized in the scripture? That's because Jacob used the word Adonai. Adonai. That's the word that they used for God. That's the title that they used when they pray. Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad, right? He called his brother that because Jacob was looking for what God had for him in people. You know, the blessing, the approval that Jacob had been wrestling for his whole life was realized in this encounter with God, but the irony is that he had it all along. He had it all along. The story of Jacob is a story of a patient God and an impatient man. I think for a lot of us, that's our story. A patient God and an impatient person. My second observation is this, that there is no length that God is not willing to go to to see his purposes come about in your life. You know, Jacob hung around trying to win the approval and favor of Laban for 20 years. Where was God in all of that? He was just waiting. He was just waiting. God has all the time in the world. We're the only ones that are ever in a hurry. He'll wait you out. You know, I think a lot of us think we know what God is capable of, and we have no idea. You know, when, when God came in the form of a person and wrestled Jacob, it said in the scripture, I kind of breezed over this, but it says to finish wrestling Jacob, he, he touched, in English it says he touched the socket of his hip, and he limped for the rest of his life. The English kind of softens it because in Hebrew, the, the socket of the hip means the, the tendon that connects the inside of your knee to the inside of your groin. It means God punched him so hard in the groin that he limped for the rest of his life. That's a cheap shot, right? We think that we know these things about God, and we don't know. We don't know. We think that God wants to make our life easy. He wants to give us wealth and prosperity and happiness. And actually, God wants to make us more like him. And he'll do whatever it takes to see that happen. And he'll wait you out. He'll wait you out. I think the promise of God is carried along in the life of every Jesus follower. Whether that promise is a blessing or a burden is up to us. So here's my encouragement to you. It's this, if you begin to see cycles and patterns in your life, like in Jacob's life, if you begin to see yourself going through the same kinds of things again and again, like you're coming around the record and you're going to hit that part that skips again in your life. You're, you're starting to see this. This is like the third time in my life now that I've seen this similar thing happen. When you start to see these cycles and these patterns and things get harder 
and more painful each time, instead of praying for rescue, can I encourage you to consider praying a prayer like this? Thank you for this lesson, God. Thank you. Help me to learn from it so this might be the last time you have to show me. In fact, let's, let's pray something like that together today. Will you join me in, in prayer? Let's, let's bow our heads and close our eyes and let's, let's come before the Lord right now. God, wherever we're at, each person here or watching online or out on the patio or wherever we're at, there's something that you want to show us, some way in which you want to return our life to the model that you intended, the model of values and, and um, the way we treat one another and the way uh, that we behave towards one another, Lord. You, you, there's, a, there's a model, something you intended for us, and you'd like to return us to that. And so I just pray right now that wherever we're at, whatever that lesson is, that painful thing that's happening in our life, God, that we would learn from it now and not have to repeat it later. God, meet us in those broken places. We hope this message encouraged you to take the next steps in your relationship with God. The cool thing is that you don't have to do it alone. There are a lot of ways you can get connected here at Hope. Not only do we want you to feel at home at Hope, we'd love to help you find a home. Please check out discoverhope.church and click connect or just email us at info at discoverhope.church. Lastly, we give everything we can away for free and rely 100% on volunteers donations to support this ministry. If you'd like to give to the Mission of Hope Church, you can select the Give option on our website or text any amount to 831-800-2060. Thanks again for tuning in.